I still was thinking through every single decision I had made. Like, oh, what if I had saved money there? Oh, what if I didn't, you know, make that decision? What if I hadn't hired that person? What if I, oh, this thing that I was distracted by, like, it was really hard to even accept, like, this failed because of the pandemic. Hey, Sheree. Hey, Han. Look at where we are. We're back. It's It's been a road. It's been a road. It has been a road. We started this podcast in the pandemic. And I remember actually when we were doing the first episode, our producer emailed us the night before and was like, are you sure you still want to do this? I think there's a pandemic happening. And we were like, no, no, we're good. Let's do it. <laughs> no, no, we're good. Like, I feel like that was like the first month of COVID was like, no, 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 we're good. No, we're good. Everything's still fine. Let's do it anyway. And we were for a while. Until we weren't. <laughs> until we weren't. <laughs> Literally until we weren't. So, Sheree, when we left off, it was still deep in the pandemic and you were running Tastemakers, your company, and then something got very real. Yeah, I think the operative word there, so we don't bury the lead, is that I was running in the past tense. And I think saying that even now is still like, what the fuck, to be honest. Um, for those who you might be listening for the first time, for seven years, I, uh, I built a company called Tastemakers Africa. It uh, allowed people to book unique experiences with creatives and hospitality entrepreneurs in African cities. Very much was one of those, like, my life's work is this thing kind of companies, which not everybody builds, but it's very much the only reason I ever became an entrepreneur. And um, obviously in a global pandemic, people are not traveling. <laughs> and they're certainly not traveling across the Atlantic Ocean. But we we tried to keep going. You know, we pivoted. We started this thing called The Thread, which was like a monthly, just incredible conversation series. So incredible. <laughs> thank you. We literally reached thousands of people every month. Um, and it was so beautiful. You know, you build something and this is to anybody, you're building something and the product, you know, quote unquote product you initially go to market with doesn't fit the moment. And it takes a lot to pivot and try something new. And it's exciting to see when that something new you pivot to like sticks in, in a different way. You know, we were having conversations that had nothing to do with travel and had everything to do with sort of a global diasporic um kind of IP sharing across mm -hmm. music, across spirituality, across wellness, across like you name it. And so it was just amazing to see that, you know, we built enough community as a company that people cared about what we had to say, even when it wasn't, here's the restaurant and chef in Ghana, you should know, you know? So that was just so affirming um, as a creator. And I think also, I just want to like, call out how incredibly difficult and impressive it is to pull off a pivot like that. Like we talk about pivots a lot in business and it's a word that you frequently hear thrown around, but when you're a startup and you've got like less employees than you can count on one hand <laughs> and enough runway in the bank for like maybe the next three months, pulling off a pivot becomes much, much more difficult than when you are 
flush with cash and resources. And the fact, like you say, that you had this incredible community that you built up from your Instagram and your Twitter that you could just like say, hey, we're doing this conversation and literally have like a thousand people turn up on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. It was like throwing a conference at at the drop of a hat. I just remember being blown away at the community that you had created. It was truly- It was crazy. Incredible. And we did it like March 26th, the first one. Like we did it like within like 10 days of the world shutting down. Um, It was amazing. Like some of our investors doubled down because they saw like this other opportunity. We brought on new team members. Like it was, it was a really- rich moment, but then it got real. And I would say if I'm really thinking about the journey with tastemakers, it got real when Chip, my CTO and dear friend, um, had to make the decision to depart the company. And I think this is in October, November, 2021. Mm -hmm. And so for a year now, you know, we had been, you know, trying to figure it out, you know, and slowly letting people go and furloughing people. And like, you know, like the membership didn't grow as much as it could have. I think the other side of that is like, that's also not the business I wanted to build. And I think sometimes as an entrepreneur, you have to just get real with yourself about that. Like I love travel. Like that is what I love. And I didn't want to build a digital membership community. Like that's just not what I was passionate about. And I think it took me some time to just even own that. Like, yes, I get it. This seems like a thing, but like, I just don't got it in me to build something I don't want to build. And that was hard. So hard. And I think we should just hold a little bit of space for that for a moment, because a lot of people have asked me, like, how do you come up with an idea for a company? And my frequent answer is like, it doesn't really matter, but whatever it is, it's got to be something that you are so passionate about that you're going to get out of bed for when you have no money, when your CTO leaves, when you can't pay yourself, when it's in deep in a pandemic. Yeah. And that what you're sharing is so, so important that like, if it's not the thing that you are so deeply passionate about, it's like you can't squeeze that last juice out of yourself to do it. No, you can't. And I remember talking to you and I was like, this thread thing is amazing. But you were like, I don't want to build a video, like a a conference company. No, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, And I think the reality is when I first did it, I had no clue that we'd be three years in a pandemic. So for me, it felt like, you know, a community engagement tool. It felt like, Mm -hmm. you know, a way to, especially I raised my uh, seed round in 2019, uh, year of return in Ghana, sort of exploded this market that like I had been seeding for almost a decade. You know, like I'd been having this like contemporary culture forward conversation about Africa since 2014. You were the like OG trailblazer in this space. Like just just early in the game. And so I think, you know, the other thing that was happening was like, I already had fatigue. It's hard when you're like building the market as you're building your business. And in some ways that's what I was doing. You know, I remember, you know, it was advice or the fader, I can't remember, but like the first article about tastemakers was like the sexy dope side of Africa. And it's crazy now, like almost a decade later, to even like read that headline, you know, in a world where Burna Boy is selling out Madison Square Garden, you know, like it's yeah. just like a different 
time. It's I remember when nobody time. knew who Burna Boy was. And like, we were like burning CDs for our customers at the end of trips so that they could hear like all of the like music that they heard. So fast forward to the pandemic. Yes, I'm super excited that like we raised our seed round and had great investors. And But like to go from what felt like the moment you'd been like pushing for where you're like actually capitalized to build this thing out and then to have like a global pandemic sort of pull the rug from under your feet was like the level of like whiplash, you know, also made it really hard like to to find which way was up, you know? And so when we got to the point where now we've been running this company with like low, 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 low revenue, people are getting online programming fatigue. So like the thing we were doing, like, started to reach the edge of its ability to grow month over month. Right. I remember that time when everyone was just sort of like overloaded on Zoom and house parties. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we we were very early in creating that. But then in some ways we figured it out for a lot of other people with a lot more money than us, you know? And so mm-hmm. you start seeing everyone creating like this top tier, like hyper produced content. And we were still a startup trying to balance like this isn't our core business our, the team I had wasn't even built for this kind of company, you know, right. and, you know, we're running out of money. You know, that was like just the reality. It was like, we're running out of money. And although our investors had doubled down in the early days of the thread, we didn't really have a story to go raise money again. At least it didn't feel like it to me. And I think having had the moments of like not paying my rent and, you know, moving abroad with my kid and like just all of the things I did to make tastemakers possible, it was one of those moments where I was just exhausted. And I think when Chip said, you know, I got to get a job, you know, that can pay me. And, you know, I'm here to support you. And he absolutely was. But it was like, in that moment, I realized, like, I don't got it in me to do this alone again. Mm. Because I'd been alone for so long. You know, I had a a late joining co-founder at one point, but then that didn't work out. But like Chip had kind of been my... He was your rock. Yeah. Through that. You know, both from like an actual, like, I remember him joining and it was like, I could actually give birth as as a non-technical founder who built literally our first site by myself. You know, our first app, I did the UI for it myself, like, (laughs) like not knowing anything about design principles I was reading, I was figuring it out. So to finally have like an actual technical counterpart to help bring these ideas to life, it was just like so, the company grew so much faster, you know, once he came on board. And he also was just like a dear friend. And I knew that decision for him wasn't easy. We'd gone through so many low moments together. Do I still think this idea and this thing is like the thing? Absolutely. But I just knew that I couldn't, do it alone. So that, that, um, it, and the other thing was like just the financial horizon. Like I was just like, he's leaving. I'm not going to be able to like pivot and create things and monetize them. And I also like was already at my edge, like mentally and emotionally with just like the crazy roller coaster of the pandemic and running a travel company. Mm. And I remember talking to, um, Eric Blatchford former CEO of Expedia, now a dear friend, and uh, really probably was like the 
the, what do you call it? The domino that like allowed us to close our seed round. Um, I remember going to Soho House with him and he was just like, it's also okay to just stop. Wow. And it was like, in the moment, I hated even the idea of it. And so Chip left, you know, Eric and I have this like dinner and he shares this with me. And he was like, Shrey, like, you're in a global pandemic. Like, you're a seed stage travel company. Like, you don't have the deep pockets of an Airbnb or a booking.com or even like a series A company to like mm-hmm. ride it out. And, and like, think about how much those companies suffered too. I mean, like, right. Airbnb had like a bounce back, but later, but it was not looking good there. It was for not a while. good. It was not good. It was not good. You just take that and put it on the scale of a seed stage company. It's like what you're up against is just, it's yeah. impossible. It's actually impossible. But it's still, you know, it's funny. I remember him and even some of our other investors being like, like, you should not, you know, don't internalize this. But I think for me, hmm. I still was thinking through every single decision I had made. Like, oh, what if I had saved money there? Oh, what if I didn't, you know, make that decision? What if I hadn't hired that yeah. person? What if I, oh, this thing that I was distracted by, like, it was really hard to even accept like this failed because of the pandemic. Mm. Because then I also like didn't know what I was gonna do. You know, like I was, I I just remember just hearing him say like, it's okay. And trying to believe that and like just being unable to. And so for months I sort of grappled with like knowing the end was near, but like not really being able to like say it out loud. And in many ways I spiraled. I read something once that said, you can't grieve if you're still hoping. Mm. And that was me. Like I was very much like grieving my life's dream. Like I literally felt like, like I know it sounds like a little bit like, I don't know, religious or whatever, but like I definitely felt like this was my divine work. Mm. And so I could not understand who was I supposed to be when my whole identity, you know, like I'm a I'm a one life kind of person. I don't like really separate like, oh, that's my work life and my home. I'm kind of like one life. I'm living one life. And so it was like, okay, practically speaking, you know, this person I really respect is telling me like, no one should like fault you for this if you ever go build another company. You know, I have like the person who I always felt like in the end, if I've got this person, I can build this. And... I've run out of money yeah, and I don't really know like what to do. And it wasn't the first time I've run out of money, you know, building my company, but it felt different and I knew it was different. And so I spent months sort of grieving, but also hoping at the same time. And those two things just don't really go together. And so I spiraled. I was a complete mess for like months, just trying to figure out what to do, but also at some point just being like completely paralyzed. And I, you know, finally sent the email in true Scorpio dramatic fashion. I sent it on, uh, I think New Year's Day, 2022. I sent the email out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd spoken to most of my investors over the course of that fall. So they weren't necessarily like blindsided. Like I, I, and then I think anybody building and having investors, like that's important keep talking to the people who believed in you, even when shit is bad. Like Mm -hmm. I I definitely felt like I was really transparent with them. 
Um, and I think in the end, like it helped me a lot and I, it, but it was hard. I want to just like pause there because like, whew, that is a lot. And there's so much that we need to hold space for. And I remember getting that email and being like, oh my God, got to text you right away. And also seeing you go through that and continue to talk to your investors. And I just want to say as your friend, like how incredibly proud of you I am that you did that. Like I remember once an investor telling me that, oh, you can always tell when a founder is not doing well anymore because they drop off and they stop communicating. And that yeah. is the tendency. And to not do that, like you say, it is so difficult because you literally have to go to the people that invested in your company and cut you checks and say like, it's just not working. It's just not working and I need your help and I need your understanding and I need your support and I need this relationship to continue because life is long and this world is small. And yeah, like you say, you're a one life person and this was your, is your life's work. And I know you're going to do it again. There's, there's absolutely no question of that. I <laughs> Oh, you say that no. now, but just wait. I know there's there's another there's another version of this in you somewhere, and it's probably not going to look like the last one. But a lot of founders continue to pick away at a similar problem space their entire lives, and I would not be surprised if um, if it's this true. doesn't come back in a in a future in a different kind of incarnation in a future state. But yeah. Going back to that email, you sent that email also while you were in the African continent too, right? How did that feel? Um, it was kind of a mixed bag. I think hmm. in some ways it felt right. Like it felt like closing a chapter hmm. while grounding there felt right. And in other ways, it felt like I was abandoning, like hmm. abandoning a baby. I have not gone back to the continent since I sent that email. Mm. Like it felt like I was purging and I literally mm -hmm. flew home the next day. And that's been an interesting thing to like reckon with. Um, I was at a, a party a couple weeks ago um, and a friend of mine, he's the founder of a music festival in Ghana that like everybody goes to. And he pulled me to the side and he was like, we need you. Like, when are you coming back? Aww. And it was interesting because I think when you're building a technology company, like the measurement of success is like, did you IPO? Did you get acquired? You know, and that's very much like those are the two. Like anything outside yeah. of that is a failure in our industry. Which is like, let's just take a minute and recognize what a ridiculously high bar that is. Yeah. For a consumer facing company, those are your two choices. Get acquired or IPO or shut it down. That's it. That's it. That's literally what you face the minute you sign that initial paperwork to start your company. You're like, this is this is what I'm getting myself into. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people were in this like startup VC funding little like fan fangirl and fanboy moment where like every person thinks that like this is how you should build a company. But like the reality is like those are the outcomes. You don't, there's not a world where like you, I mean, I, I've, I've heard of people doing this and so let me not like be like extreme, but I think it's much harder to like, oh, okay, this path, you know, that I signed up on didn't work out. I'm going to just like run the business as a small business now. Like it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, 
it's it's possible, but it's it's yeah, very hard to it's do. Hard. It's easier to go that way into the VC model, but it's much harder to go back the other way because now you have these huge expectations of yeah. 10x growth and returns from your investors. Yeah. You know, when my friend was like, "Where are you?" it was it was it was a it was an interesting thing because I think given the metrics of venture capital success and holding failure and not trying to skirt around it. In some ways I'd for, not forgotten, but it was hard for me to hold that for many people, this was such a win. Hmm. And for many people, this company I built was like a critical piece of infrastructure in this like new economy and this new market. Yeah. And I think I told myself a story for a long time that like all of my mistakes in building tastemakers were the legacy of it. When I raised the first million for tastemakers, we were still counting the number of black women who had raised over a million. Like, you know, it was less than 50 when I did. I think I was like number 30 something. We don't get this shot. So for me, you know, black girl, originally from New York, family from the South, never, you know, did not come up with people building tech companies and people raising money for business. Like none of that was a part of my story. And so there was so much of it that felt like, oh, not only am I letting down myself and my investors, you know, I'm letting down my son. I remember trying to tell Trace Mm -hmm. that I wasn't building tastemakers anymore. And that was one of the hardest conversations to have because when people were like, oh, you have a kid, Like, how are you building this company that requires you to be traveling all over the world with a kid? I'd be like, oh, short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. And so what I'd really told myself was that missing these moments of my child being six, seven, eight, nine years old was all going to be worth it because I'm going to build this like world-changing, successful company. And not only is he going to be able to get to see me do it, but like financially, like legacy wise, like he's going to be able to reach the benefit and we're going to create like generational shift, you know, in our family by me doing this. And so uh, Anna Palmer, who's a GP at Flybridge that, you know, they were our biggest investor. She said to me once that like when your company fails or your company ends and it's not, you know, in a, what a positive outcome from a venture standard perspective, like, Not only are you mourning your company, but you're mourning the life you thought you were going to live. And I think when it came to like my son, that was really loud. So it was like, it just felt like I let everyone down. It's so many like circles of identity, like yourself, your family unit, then your generation, your community, this world that we live in and different continents and the diaspora, like... Also, you'd been running this company for seven years before this. So this is your identity. And Mm -hmm. it is so, so, so hard to face that. I know I've been there and I'm sure many people listening have been there. And this will be a thing that we come back to, too, on the the cast in later episodes about like how critical it is to have an identity and a sense of self outside of your work so that like if something goes tits up with your work you can still like have a solid foundation as self but this is so so difficult as a founder and especially when you add all these other things on top of it that you're talking about this like the family the community I want to just like pause and ask like 
Do you think that we put too much pressure on ourselves when we're the first in a market, in a sector, as as our identity? Like, what do you think of that? I think on the one hand, on the other side of tastemakers, I've probably done the most sort of soul-searching kind of work that I've ever done on myself. Like I'd done things before, done Landmark, you know, I'd dabbled in therapy before I'd, but like, I feel like, you know, if I look at the last two years, like it's just been like a lot of that. But I also think that outlier outcomes require outlier effort. Mm. I think right now we're in this beautiful moment as a culture and I'm thankful for it where we're like rest and work is not your whole life and da 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 like, and I a thousand percent agree with that. And I, even for myself, there were so many ways I wish I would have like created space for myself when I was building my company. There is some level of like relentless, you kind of have to be. I don't think it happens another way. I just don't. And like, that might not be like the most popular opinion right now, mm-hmm. but I, I think as much as like, when you're a founder, People invest in you, especially if you're a consumer founder. There's a part of the like, it doesn't have to be cult of personality, so to speak, but there is some level of being married to it that you really have to be in order for people to feel like they should pay attention to you. Yeah. Coming from a grounded place at that and knowing that is very different than assigning your personal value yes. to the outcome of that thing. And I think that's where, I don't think, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with some ways with like your identity and your work. Like, especially if you choose to work on things that you're truly passionate about, mm-hmm. I think it's okay for those things to be joined. What's not okay is how you assign value to yourself, how you assign worthiness to yourself. There was a minute where I was like, well, if I'm not Sheree Robinson, CEO of Tastemakers, you know, what is my value? When I, in many ways, me being this like badass global black woman CEO with the venture capital backing that's so hard to get, sometimes that was propping up and allowing me to sidestep my deep insecurities. Mm -hmm. You know, I had deep insecurities about being unmarried. I had deep insecurities about being a single mom. Mm -hmm. I had deep insecurities about like family and background. And so there were like a lot of things that those huge, exciting sounding success markers allowed me to hide behind. And one of the reckonings was like, how do I introduce myself? Mm. What am I saying that tells people I'm worthy? Mm. What am I telling people that lets them know that I'm smart and I'm this and I'm yeah. like, so it was like not trusting that just me, just me, irrespective of anything that I'd accomplished was enough and not having a strong sense that that was true. A lot of the last two years has been building the muscle to believe in that and to define and strengthen sort of that core belief in the self. There's a book called The Untethered Soul that I read. And there's a whole passage about like, who am I? And it talks about like who you are 
is like the voice inside that's observing. Who you are is actually the observer that's inside of you. Oh, I wish I could just like reach across the video and give you a hug right now because <laughs> you are enough and everybody listening is enough. We are all enough just the way we are. But damn, it is sometimes the hardest fucking thing to reconcile. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And let's not um, also forget, too, like all the pressures of this capitalist society that we live in and we play in. Like, let's be honest, we're we yep. VC back companies, but like, yep. there's just so much pressure to succeed and to tie our own worthiness to the tangible outcome of what we do. So tell me, Sheree, after that, how did you find closure? Because this is not something we talk about much, mm -hmm. right? We talk mm -hmm. about the next success and yeah. it's like people kind of go dark until they start their next thing and then everyone's like, oh, check out what they're doing now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. it's so hard to mourn, to grieve when we don't have closure. I mean, that's like mm -hmm. literally why we have rituals as human beings for our yeah. decease so that we can have that moment when we come together and we have closure. Yeah. So how did you find that? I don't think I've actually found closure, to be honest. I, I think I've found acceptance more mm. than closure. I think closure signifies peace, peace with the end and some sort of wrap up. And I think in many ways, I'm still in process. I think what I've accepted wholeheartedly is that moment has passed. So now I'm head of community at Flybridge, which was also the biggest venture fund to back tastemakers. I remember when it was time to do like my position announcement, and I really struggled. Like I kept kicking the can. They kept being like, when do you want to do it? And I kept being like, oh, mm -hmm. and I just wasn't ready to like say it out loud, like outside yeah. of the email I sent. Like I didn't want to put it on my link. Like I really struggled. It's definitely not as heavy as it was, but there are days, like even last night, I was having like half daydream, half real dream, where I was like, well, maybe I should just like do an email to the tastemakers list and say, let's go to Ghana in December and here's the freaking Stripe link to pay. <laughs> like, I, I have these moments <laughs> where I'm like, well, maybe I should just I start it back up. <laughs> you Listen. have your first customer right here. <laughs> but I am working with a spiritualist. Her name is Aki. Uh, here in Brooklyn, she she runs a, I guess, a healing and wellness business called Minka Brooklyn. And I did a, se a session with her that was like part Reiki, part tarot, part like just talking about things. One of the things she told me was like, you're so used to building in the light. Like you see a thing, you go after it. But right now, like it's time to exist in the dark. Mm. And in the darkness, like things come to you. Like think about dreaming. Like when you're sleeping, you don't ask for your dreams. You don't set your sight on the dreams. The dreams just come. And so I think the acceptance is that like, I accept that I'm uncomfortable right now. Mm. I accept that I'm still really freaking sad that Tastemakers is not what I'm doing. I accept that like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I accept that I am in deep gratitude for being able to have a job that I do well and work with people I respect and who I know believe in me and that that's giving me all sorts of lessons and opportunities, even if I don't quite know how it all 
kind of fits in with my own long arc narrative. Mm. I accept there are things I think I want to start and I can't find the energy for them right now. There are so many things like I accept that I'm not at the level of productivity that I like normally feel like I'm at, like in different cycles. Like I think I just accept that like right now life looks a little unfamiliar Mm. and I've fought that for the majority of the past two years, like since shutting tastemakers down. And I think I'm reminding myself that like I'm accountable for the life that I want. And I'm trying to accept that like in every part of my life. But I accept that right now, there's just like a just bunch of things that I just like don't know. And yeah. that sometimes it's okay. Yeah. Like sometimes it's okay. So it's like, nope, no closure has happened. But mm-hmm. a lot of acceptance lot has of happened. Acceptance. And a lot of gratitude has happened. And a lot of appreciation for the parts of our journey when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're grateful for like all that we can experience. And so that's kind of like where I landed. And I've noticed such a shift in you since you kind of like put down the fight as it were and moved into the acceptance. Acceptance is so hard, but like fighting is (laughs) way worse. Harder. (laughs) And I think like, Hearing you say this reminds me also of just how much of a creative journey the work of a founder is too, because it makes me think of the seasons and the importance of like fields being fallow to be able to produce more in another time and how we're not Mm -hmm. always going back to this, you know, the, the narrative of capitalism, like we're not always in our highest producing moment at all times. Mm -hmm. Or like this conversation I had once with a friend whose partner is a a songwriter. And, and he was like, yeah, she's, you know, having a great moment right now, like writing all these hits. And I was like, well, what do you mean a great moment? And he was like, well, you know, like musicians go through seasons, like sometimes your work is hitting the charts and sometimes you're just kind of sitting around in a funk, like not writing anything good. And that's just normal. And it, the Mm. way he said it in such a matter of fact way, Mm. I was Mm. like, whoa, like talk Mm. about radical acceptance for the creative process that, yeah, yeah, sometimes we're doing things in the spotlight and a lot of the times we're doing things in the dark and That's usually when that next great thing comes to us is when you have the kind of like the storm clouds and the dark skies and the dreaming moments. But boy, do we not talk about it so many times in our life. And so thank you, Sheree, for sharing this story today with our listeners. I honestly can't think of a more incredible way to bring back the show than with this powerful, powerful, meaningful, deep story that you shared. So thank you so much. Um, should we talk about a record scratch? Yes. Because you texted me something this week and I was like, what? I need to look this up. And then I read the article and I was just like, listen, I can't. Listen. So the record scratch moment that I want to talk about this week is actually a lawsuit that was filed recently against a Black woman-led venture capital fund called the Fearless Fund. One of the co-founders of it is Keisha Knight Pullman, who was Rudy on The Cosby Show. So I feel like this is a thing you guys should know. Wow. She and another like incredible businesswoman started 
the Fearless Fund, and they've been giving grants to Black women business owners at a time like it's still hard to to raise money. I mean, we literally just talked about this, right? You're probably like in the first 50 women, Black women to do this, right? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> so what's wild about this is that the conservative activists who essentially wiped out affirmative action is now suing the Fearless Fund, claiming that their funding practices are discriminatory. And I think that it's insane, but not surprising. Mm. And I think that's the part of it that's actually really loud. Like the fact that people saw the affirmative action decision and there was a lot of like VC Twitter combos or lack thereof. And the fact that like the next hit that this guy goes after is actually like funding itself. And when you really think about what's happening, this person is using the guise of like anti-discrimination to turn back the clock on even the smallest of wins that we've achieved to try to create some sort of equitable balance after hundreds of years of inequity in this country. You know, like I think I work in venture capital now and I think about the networks and the generations of opportunity that non-Black people, non-people like have had and the fact that we are not starting from the same baseline. And so repealing affirmative action is a wipeout. Now you're attacking Black women venture funds that fund. And if he already won the first time, like he knows the playbook. Mm-hmm. And I think the silence to me from the larger venture capital community is deafening. Like it is so loud to me that these two dynamic young Black women are now having to take time away from their work of preparing and seeding funding for Black women entrepreneurs who don't have the Rolodex and wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. Like that work now has to be on pause so that they can now fight this lawsuit from a person who we already know is relentless in their conviction, shutting down opportunities for this country to be like what it could be. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's my, it's my record scratch moment. Whew. What a record scratch after today's conversation too. Like, yeah. and what happens next? Like that's where my mind goes. Like if something, when something like this comes to pass, what does that mean for other companies or organizations that are focused on helping a specific group of people and like where do you draw the line on this stuff and there's so many disparate groups across the U.S. and the world that need this kind of help in wherever it might be like there's it's not obviously just business and venture capital funding it could be many many other things and so I can see this start to affect all sorts of really important things like family planning food chain communities developments education. Exactly. Like anything designed to level the playing field for underrepresented, under-resourced, underfunded, under-focused on marginalized people. Basically, this precedent would say services, 
and programs designed to meaningfully impact these groups and communities are somehow discriminatory. I can't tell if, I, I think for me, was we think about record scratch. I don't know what's the bigger record scratch, the fact that this person has sued Fearless Fund mm. or the fact that like there's no real discourse around what this means, especially on the heels of this affirmative action decision. Yeah. I think one of the scary things about the courts right now and all the conservative judges on the courts and even if I remove like conservative versus progressive and I think about how the court system works, the lawsuit is filed. It's going to work its way up the courts. And as citizens, we're completely outside of that process. Mm -hmm. We are completely outside of this process that fundamentally has an impact on our society. Mm -hmm. It's just wild to me. And I, and I just really think not only do we need to galvanize support around Fearless Fund, but I think we need to really figure out like how as citizens do we get re-engage, like, yes, vote, but also like at every level. Right now, our hands are tied. This thing is going to work its way through the court system. Maybe it makes it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Maybe now that's banned. Yeah. And then who's going to do that work? Just because some people have gotten successful today and you see, you know, a diverse set of folks with means and, you know, rising social status and class, like, yes, but we are far, far, far from a place of arrival after literally centuries of race-based, gender-based, sexual orientation-based discrimination mm. in this country. And to think that because some percentage of people, you know, have been able to be exceptional in order to transcend. And I think this is, this is important because I don't think we should have to be exceptional to have agency in our lives. No. I don't think we should have to be exceptional to meet our basic needs. I don't think we should have to be exceptional to create lives for our children. I, I don't think one should have to be exceptional. But in this country, if you are a minority, you have to be exceptional. That is a requirement for you to have a basic standard of living. And that is because of the way this country was built. And so I'm looking at this lawsuit and I'm like, this is yes about this one venture capital fund, but it is about so, so much, much more. more. And it just feels like, what yeah. do we do? Like, what can we do? Well, to start with, we can have conversations like this and let people know about it. Because I remember yeah. how shocked I was reading yeah. that article and being like, wait, how come I didn't see this on social? Like, how come nobody's talking about this? Like, why are you texting yeah. this to me? Like, huh? Like, I mean, I work in yeah. tech. I should have heard about it. Yeah. And like, yeah. I just want to unpack a couple of things that you said about this, like the this fact that you need to be exceptional. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, like this just plays into this narrative that we're not enough. And it is so yeah. important that people know that they're enough without having to be exceptional. Because like, let's be real, you're like the 0. 0.0000, I don't even know what, <laughs> that gets that gets funding right. for your company. <laughs> VC funding right. as a black woman, right? We just talked about that. And I have to wonder also if there's something in this that's directly tied to money. It's like, okay, we're fine with, you know, mm -hmm. like a dot org or a group, like leveling the playing field and helping people out. And, you know, maybe if it was about something that's, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say like traditionally more acceptable for women, like 
you know, support mm. for mothers mm. or something yeah. like that, that would be fine. Yeah. But now, oh, no, no, no. Now we're talking about raising mm. millions of dollars for your business so that you can be, you know, become a baller entrepreneur and maybe become very rich from it. And now it's a problem. And that is where my mind went yep. when I read this article. I was like, yeah. oh, we're going to limit you at being successful. That's that's actually where this dude has an issue is like, you're making money. And that's not very different from the affirmative action thing. So it's like, it, it's so crazy. And I did not think about it that way. But like, even as you said it, like, oh, he's not going after no. nonprofits. You know, he first went after institutions and his biggest beef with that was Ivy League institutions. Now he's going after venture capital. And you think about it, if you go to an Ivy League and then you're able to like be at like a specific level of society where you have influence and you can make decisions and you have greater economic yeah. outcomes, like now you're charting your own course. Same with this venture thing. More Black people are able to build like successful venture backed companies, then that's creating a world where we have agency to determine outcomes for ourselves and, and our community. wealth, to invest in more companies and all of it. All of it. And it's not a handout. It disrupts the current balance of power. Because that power is money. This dude just doesn't want other people to get rich. Yeah. And even outside of just getting rich, there is a, a underlying threat to the current mm -hmm. way if other people have the opportunity yeah. to shape the world. Yeah. And we live in capitalism. So the more money you have, the greater your ability to influence the world we live in and what it looks like and who it's hospitable towards. Yep. I hate feeling hamstrung, but I think for our listeners, Google Fearless Fund, follow what's happening to your senator, state level, local level, federal, like all of the things. Um, I think Fearless Fund is like putting some stuff out around how to support their legal efforts. Let's not let it get to Supreme Court decision, be now on the, on the back end, having things happen to us, you know? Yeah. So I think like trying to spread the word about what's happening so people can get involved in whatever way they can. And I think if you're running a venture fund, even if you're not actually, especially if you're not targeting these communities, like we need you to be an ally. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to share out some resources on our socials where you can check out more about the Fearless Fund and the conversation that is happening and getting involved, which is a good moment to also say, uh, since we're kicking off the top of our next season and we've got a juicy 30 episodes coming to you every week. Uh, since we're kicking off the top of our next season and we've got a juicy 30 episodes coming to you every week, um, go hit that subscribe button wherever you like to listen or watch the show and follow us on socials at Got Real Pod. And please, if you like this show, if you think it's valuable, if you think it will help other people, please share a review. It really helps other people find this resource. Um, and it's not about doing it for us. It's about doing it for the collective, for the community, for the world and sharing these stories because we think they, they help out. And so if they help you, that's what you can do back. Thank you. 